Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. Today, I've got Braden Cundiff with me. Braden, thanks for taking time out of your day. Thanks for having me, Dave. Uh, we're going to talk today about a model that Braden has come up with for, for how to create change. So this is something that could be applied on an individual level, also at an organizational level. We're going to talk through how it works, give you some examples, break down why it works, and show you how it's built by kind of creating a mashup of some other models. Um, and before we get into that, Braden, would you mind sharing a little bit about your background and telling these folks who you are? Absolutely. My uh, first degree was in secondary education. I wanted to be a history, government, psychology teacher. Uh, this was right during our first financial crisis back in 2008. So I actually ended up going over to China, lived with a communist family and started working on my master's. Uh, we had the difference between Western and Eastern education systems. Then popped over to Korea, lived there for about a year and a half, teaching kindergarten to middle school, all levels, uh, mostly English immersion. Then came back to the States and worked at Big Visible, which is where I met Dave here. And my first focus was on building agile curriculums, training curriculums, uh, delivering those uh, foundational trainings, then slowly becoming a grasshopper agile coach. Uh, and then <laughs> eventually leads to uh, McGraw-Hill, where I led the uh, agile transformation globally for them. And I've been there for the past seven years working in various roles for my latest uh, hat that I'm wearing is the uh, director of business platforms. Um, and so that involves managing all kinds of different uh, life cycle developments or products, uh, how projects are fitting in, uh, all those, all those fun things that come around with building products. Okay, cool. So at McGraw, they were, you were kind of helped them through the transformation over to a more agile way of working, right? Yeah, that's uh, one of the inspirations that I really had for doing this, uh, this flip methodology is that uh, I was able to see a, an organization that's over 100, you know, 100 years old, uh, and it's trying to transition from this publishing mentality of trying to get it right the first time to try and get it right the last time. And so what I led was really a, a shotgun approach across all the different uh, regions, uh, both globally and in the United States. At delivering agile trainings and then really led those, uh, I guess, development efforts, organization development efforts in Seattle over the course of uh, my first you know, three or four years at Prevail. So it was really exciting to see, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, you know, got a lot of things right. But um, you know, being able to see that perspective really gave me an idea of you know, kind of what I saw at Big Visible when we were working together um, and some of the, the theory around it that I built in my master's degree. Um, to really looking at the the application and the applicability of some of those things and what did work in the field and what didn't. Okay, cool. So um, when we go through this, if you're listening, one, one of the things to try to pay attention to is we're going to talk about different examples of how this system works and break down how it works, but we're going to talk about it at a larger scale. But my favorite example is one Braden's going to share. I'm going to ask Braden to share now about um, it involves his Kindle and how creating change at a personal level um, kind of how do you, you remove barriers to make it easier to say yes to stuff. So would you mind telling them the Kindle story? Yeah, so this came about as I was trying to apply this flip methodology beyond just organizational change, right? And trying to look at it and say, okay, what are the, at its ethos, I just wanted to be able to help people prop, you know, solve problems and giving a playbook to, to analyze and solve problems. And so what I had was my own problem was I wasn't reading enough of my uh, old textbooks on my Kindle. Um, they weren't some of the most uh, maybe exciting texts to read, but they were really crucial to building out the right um, resources in my white paper and citing the right people and really being able to build my arguments. 
So I knew I had to do it. And so I analyzed that as a problem and I designed a solution. And my solution initially was uh, a couple of things, tried to put it by my bedside, just ended up you know, not doing it, going to bed or, or just scanning on my phone. And so I realized I needed to flip my perspective of how I was looking at the problem and say, okay, I'm having an issue saying yes to picking up this Kindle. I know that it's harder to say no. So what if I put this as a barrier in my way as something I have to say no to and really really putting in uh, constructive barriers. And I've seen this in, uh, in Scaling Up Agile and a couple of other things that uh, I went back through and read. And the idea was that by putting that Kindle on top of my peptides, which I put in uh, my coffee every morning, um, trying to <laughs> keep my hair for as long as I can. But uh, what I had to do was I had to look at that Kindle, pick it up off the peptides, either place it somewhere, actively say no to reading, open the peptides, put them in my coffee, close them, and then put it back on without reading it. So I really have to say no twice. And so what I was doing was kind of building in some of that, it almost felt like a Catholic guilt to say, oh, well, I'm saying no to this again, right? Like <laughs> I was kind of directing that, uh, you know, that guilt in a way, in a, in a good way to say, all right, well, can I keep saying no to this? And so as I moved from that design to that development stage and then eventually into implementation, where I actually started reading it, you know, I realized that, you know, I was starting to really take more time standing there and, and reading that, that Kindle. It started from just a few seconds, right? And then it turned into 30 seconds and then, you know, a little bit longer. Now, you know, it might be like five minutes, but I'm great to pop in. It's just that, that habit, that behavior that I realized I had to change. Uh, and that's something that we'll talk about with the flip method is going through the ADI process sequentially, analyzing a problem, designing a solution, developing that solution, implementing it, and then evaluating where you are, and then adding on as the kind of capper to that, the, the evaluation piece of that is what was your learning outcome and what behaviors and skills did you need to change or add to be able to hit that learning outcome. So for me, the learning outcome was start to leverage more of those texts I had in the past in my white paper that was end up being this product. And the skill that I had, I, I know I you know, generally know how to read. So I did that. I had that skill. I didn't have to change that variable, but it did have to change in order to get to that learning outcome was my behavior of being willing to read with my morning coffee, right? And so those are the things that I had to make a change in how I was perceiving my problem by saying no to say yes in order to achieve that learning outcome. So it, it really was the, the, the light bulb moment for me where I realized that you know, this, uh, you know, this flip method, which I, I use that word specifically, this collection of practices really can be used um, as you know, something very small or something very big. Yeah. So it's really, it was interesting to me when you said the thing about being Catholic, because it immediately made me think about Lent. And just in case anybody's listening, isn't, doesn't have the context for that. I want to try to explain this to you because to me, it's a really great analogy to this. Um, I was raised in an environment where I understood that during Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter, you have to give something up. You're, you'll be a better person if you deny yourself something. So it was always this thing about how you couldn't have stuff. You couldn't have candy. You couldn't watch TV. Whatever it is, little kids are, you know, give up to try to be better by denying themselves something. And then I guess at around seventh or eighth grade, somebody explained to me, well, you could also do something. You could take you could take on something instead. Like you don't have to give something up. You could just try to do one nice thing a day, or you know, find something positive instead of denying yourself something. And it completely changed my response to that <laughs> 40 days. Like, wait, I don't have to be like suffering the whole time. I could do something nice. And um, I think that that example with the Kindle of like, 
you make it easier to give in to the thing than it would be to not do the thing. Right. And that's and that's how you're creating that change. So and that's where the flipped name comes from, right? Because you're trying to turn that upside down. Yeah, that, that was the that, the moment right, where I would have to actually, you know, <laughs> it was almost like a guilt where you have to flip the, the Kindle over and say no to it, right? Like, oh, no, no don't even look at me. I'm not going to read you this yeah. morning, right? And and just trying to redirect some of those uh, attitudes we have that we know, it's hard to say no, right? We, I get into this and we talk later in the white paper about, um, you know, our, our implementation, right? Um, and being able to say no when you have too much on your plate, right? Or being able to say no to a, a development project, right? You go in from development, get to implementation, you realize, you know what? This really, you know, it's going to be more costly for us to continue to support the timeline of this product, right? Rather than, you know, saying no. And, you know, by putting some of those barriers in place, good barriers, uh, it makes you have those, you know, those conversations from a different perspective. And yeah. that was, um, and once you do it, once you do something more difficult, right? Like saying no, it you know it's it's more valuable to you anyway, right? So once you've gotten through it, and then you start to build it, like okay, there was there was some reason I didn't want to do this before. Now I've changed this behavior, uh, and it you know, will lead to to some outcome. Yeah, I want to ask you about the Addy stuff in a second, but before that, I'm just curious. This reframing, because that is some reframing these kinds of things for me has has been something I've been working on for years to try to see things in a different light and turn them into something that where I can positively affect change instead of just kind of suffering through this Sisyphus push uphill. Um, is that something that you, you have to do consciously in a lot of different areas or is that just like, did that just pop up for you in this particular situation? You're, you're definitely not alone on that idea of how do we, you know, it's almost measuring it differently. And the, uh, Project Management Institute calls these uh, soft factors, and they're really those um, those behaviors and those skills, and also competencies you know, that exist. And so, if you're going uh, you know, across and you're working on a project, and you have metrics that tell you, you know, to a, a pretty good degree now in the agile space whether or not you're successful, right? And yeah, you can go into all the different project metrics. What it's hard to understand is uh, flipping your perspective from a project to a product. And starting to be a little bit more conversations around this um, in all spaces. But the idea is that um, you can't have a time-bound perspective of the product. So for a project, you have the iron triangle. Um, mm -hmm. You have your cost, you have your time, you have quality, and you have scope. You change any of those, and you're going to have an effect on, on the other, right? And the soft factors are the elements that are pushing on that triangle if you're looking at it in more of a, you know, a 3D sphere and those are the behaviors and skills that i'm starting to try and get folks to try and to look at and say okay you need to measure these the behaviors and skills of your people because that will give you a better measurement of how long your product life cycle is going to go right because it's just it's not the same that's the biggest metric with you know, the iron triangle works i've done it you know yeah. <laughs> plenty of times and it's, it's really important for a project but where you have that flip moment is, okay, this was a project. Now it's become a product, right? And now I don't know how long potentially this product may live, right? Some people might, you know, that could be different if you're, you know, say, a, um, you know, a meatpacking business, right? Something else, okay, yeah. you know, this product has an end, well, you know, an end life, but you don't know specifically when that meat's going to be consumed, right? You can put a date on it and say, all right, it should, but you still don't know, right? That's, that's the big shift that, I, you know, that I've been trying to get around is, okay, how do we measure this, you know, unbound 
um, client perspective of the product. And my argument is that you look at, you know, sequentially a problem that you have, you start with analyzing, naming that problem, designing a solution. But at each of those phases in the Addy process, you measure the behaviors and skills that your people have, you know, either taken on or that currently exist. And then what learning outcome that is leading to after, you know, at each of those phases. Um, that's that's really the core of what um, what makes this a, a white paper at the end of the day is I'm arguing some core elements of the Addy process working through it sequentially and then adding on, you know, very prescriptively the cognitive formula of learning outcomes equaling behaviors and skills. And so from a perspective, um, I guess, perspective perspective <laughs> um it's saying that this is you have to follow these steps right but then what problem you're trying to solve is going to influence how much time you have to spend in each of those phases of the adding process okay so it really is all around you know all around time um, in a lot of ways okay so um for those of you who may not be familiar with with the Addy model it's an acronym and it stands for analysis design development implementation and evaluation um can you could you spend a minute or two just talking about you know what this is how you've used it in the past and then i know that you've kind of built up the evaluation part of it for what you're working on but could you just introduce it as a model to folks who aren't familiar with it yeah absolutely so traditionally you would use the the addy process to plan out a path for instruction design and what I've done is taken it a step further and applying it to organizational change management. So those of you that have been through you know, either a Scrum Foundational course or a CSM course or, or something of that nature, you may have seen this come up in one of the various slides, right? And the idea behind it is a structured way to approach a problem. And from an instructional design perspective, where I think it needed to be expanded is that in the analysis stage, if you decide you know, again, this is my instructional systems technology background, that there is not a, a solution that you can design that involves instruction. I mean, instructional design means <laughs> designing instruction. But if you use the Addy process, a lot of the times it'll stop at that design process. And it'll say, okay, well, we don't need to design instruction, so we stop and you know, move away from it. And I really think there's a lot more just to the field in general of instructional system technology, instructional design, that can be brought out of that Addy process. So the Addy process actually, its original um, incorporation was by the Florida, by Florida State University back in the 1970s. And that was in support of the uh, US military, the, uh, and specifically the army, was looking for a better way to organize themselves um, you know, as they're going into this, you know, this new, new, new world right, of uh, technology and everything else that was being built around it. And so over the last 50 years, you know, it's been taken in different pieces um, and you know, kind of broken apart or put together in different ways. Um, but what I'm trying to take it to its next level is beyond just instruction design and really look at it as a way to um, design systems, you know, systems thinking around the problems. You're designing a solution for a problem using a process that we know works um, just using it in a different, a slightly different way, um, which is why we call this a, a flip method, and then adding on the cognitive formula to help with that evaluation stage. Okay. So you're basically designing and running experiments over and over and over. And I mean, that sounds kind of similar to what we'd be doing in, in a practice like Scrum, but you're, each, each experiment you run is informing your next decision as you go, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess a good, you know, I guess a tactical example was I was looking at a way to analyze why we weren't able to get a lot of our folks in the on board with um, to start our agile rollout. This was initially you know, two or three years ago. And I'd already known about, I've known about the Eddie process for probably the last decade. So I've applied it in different ways that fits into you know, the skeleton of the split methodology. But anyhow, what I was looking at was, okay, my problem is that why are folks not you know, embracing um, you know, this methodology? And so I, I analyzed it, I tried to design a solution. We went out and uh, sent out different surveys. And I was trying to get a kind of a feeling of uh, how can we make this better for folks? And my thought was, okay, well, we just need to, you know, develop you know, more hands-on training, right? And so we went there, we implemented, evaluated, and it still wasn't, um, it wasn't taken as much hold as I had hoped to with some of the, the legacy folks that have been there for a long time. And what I realized, you know, the last couple of years when I look back at that, about you know, six years ago, five years ago, was that I didn't analyze the behaviors. I was trying, I analyzed the problem and that, was, that problem was correct. It wasn't sitting in the agile um, trainings initially weren't seeping into folks, but I didn't look at in the design stage, I didn't ask myself that cognitive formula, okay, what's the learning outcome? What are the behaviors I'm trying to change? Because yeah. they had the skills and I knew they had the skills, you know, the, they're the best math editors, you know, probably in the world, right? But the behavior that they had was that they had to get it right the first time, because if you have to reprint something, it's, you know, it's extremely expensive. It's, you know, it's impossible. Yeah. And so the behavior that they had to flip was getting it right the last time and being able to to make small mistakes and so what we should have been designing um, as a learning outcome there right to be able to get folks to really embrace the learning science company was how do we protect the people so that their behavior of getting it wrong the first time which their 20 30 years of experience was against this to making small mistakes and then getting right the last time that's where we should have been designing a solution around Right? And that would have been the behavior that we would have focused on that could have cascaded down the rest of you know, developing out agile teams, implementing those agile teams and evaluating. And that yeah. was the real, um, the real moment where I realized you know, retrospectively looking back, right? You know, if I'd known that then, that would be great. But um, looking back, <laughs> right? I was like, okay, wow, that's, we should have been focusing not on, you know, user story workshops, right? Or um, you know, acceptance story, you know, writing it, those things are super important for a project. And the, you know, the nice thing is they've been proliferated out now a lot more. So you have more access than you did you know, seven years ago to some of that content. But what we should have been focusing on is, you know, how do we, how do we design this environment, this organizational environment, which makes people feel comfortable with changing their behavior or getting it wrong the first time. Um, and, that I get kind of into you know, talking about that you know, later in the white paper about, okay, here's, here's what we should have done, right? Designing this, or here's what we did do, right? Um, or here's what we did, you know, at one of our other you know, fortune 50 companies when I was working at. Uh, yeah. It's funny. It almost sounds like design thinking for behavioral change. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you described is you can, you can go in with attempts at solving the problem, but if you don't understand the whole systematic all the systematic issues, or at least have a broad view there, then you're going to end up like that, the joke about being drunk under the streetlight where the guy's looking for, he loses his keys, mm-hmm. but he looks for his keys under the streetlight because the light's better there, even though his keys were nowhere near there when he lost them. Um, yeah. I'm teaching you user stories, but the problem is that your company is still set up with matrix siloed teams and you can't do this stuff, right? So, so there's lots of things that can get in the way. Um, 
And that's really, that's really what I struggled with on BookBook is you know, the, the balancing out of the value of project metrics right. also with the flipping perspective of your product. So don't, don't throw the, you know, the baby out of the bathwater with these project metrics. They are important. But there will be times where they're going to conflict, where you might have to say, okay, in order to make people feel safe with changing this behavior, our stories, you know, the points that we take on for this sprint need to go down because we are going to make mistakes, right? You have to call it out and you, that's where they go hand in hand. And, you know, that's the, that attitude and that flip perspective is what helps you create a great product because you, you know, you spend the time where you need to on building the right behaviors, which leads into a product and can't really, you know, you could get a whole project done and everybody, you know, could suppress a certain behavior. Yeah. But those behaviors um, and you know, those skills always show up in the product. It's funny with the example that you gave, I just want to kind of hit on that for a second because you didn't really punch it the way I was hoping you would. Oh. <laughs> um, when you make these kinds of changes, productivity is going to drop. And especially mm -hmm. if you're new to Agilus, and especially if you've got executive management who has only read Jeff Sutherland's book, most recent book, then they're going to be like, what about twice the work in half the time? All I see is you going slower. This doesn't right. work. And you, it's like playing an instrument, right? You have to sound horrible before you sound good. And I think if you're making this kind of change, one of the things that um, a lot of companies fail to take into account is that like somebody who's a professional athlete, like if I'm, you know, uh, Bryce Harper, I didn't just walk up to the plate for the very first time and hit a home run. I struck out a thousand times before I was able to do that. And I think that that point about getting it right the last time is a really big deal too, because each failure gets us one step closer to the light bulb working. So you're just going to keep designing things. And um, I mean, maybe that's something to think about. If you looked at metrics of like how long you have to continue down this path, or is there like a certain, because people would get fatigued from running experiments after a certain point in time, don't you think? Yeah, it's once I would say once you figure out the the right problem to solve, right, it could be that it's a you know a tremendously large problem, and then you're in your design phase for who knows how long, right? That's that's kind of that time element that I'm arguing as well with the Addy phases. Is you might move really quickly through some of the phases um, mm -hmm. and really slowly through others, kind of depending on what that um, what that problem is. So if you do spend too much time. So that's why the project metrics are important. Let's say you're spending too much time in the, in the design stage or you know, the development stage, right? Then you need to look back and say, you know, are we really solving the right problem? Um, or are we working towards you know, something that we thought was the problem, but now that we've gone through these phases of design development, we've realized that actually there's a more important problem that we need to solve. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's something that, uh, that I go into a little bit in the uh, analysis stage, uh, analysis phase of, of the white paper is, you know, at McGraw Hill, we thought the problem was, okay, we need to become a, a learning science company. And to do that, we're going to use, you know, agile development principles, right? And, you know, do those, you know, just do both of those things actually go hand in hand with creating a better product? Um, you know, that's, you know, that's a question that I dig further into, right? Yeah. Um, because it, it may or may not, but that was a, you know, a project goal um, and we had a certain way to get there. But at some point you have to flip and say, okay, we get that that was a goal, and but is this analyzed problem you know, actually the right problem for yeah, us to solve? Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. I, I think one of the things I'm also that just occurred to me this time is that um, if your organization is, is you're finding out that a lot of your hypotheses are incorrect. So maybe there's a lot of missteps along the way. And I can see where people would get frustrated with what they would perceive as a lack of progress. But back to that reframing thing, um, each time your organization goes around this loop, they're getting stronger. They're learning, they're getting better yeah. at figuring out how to identify and solve problems or pinpointing what is actually the thing that's blocking us. Um, so it, it's like, it sounds to me, and I guess I'm asking you because you've been through this, it sounds to me like going through the steps of figuring out what the problem actually is, that in and of itself is going to strengthen your organization and your team. And then when you identify the problem, you go through the steps of actually solving it, and then you end up with what you wanted at the end. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's exactly it. And I've seen that tactically with, uh, if we go into with some of the, the things that we look at in JIRA, right, in our you know, flow diagrams or whatever products you're using to manage. Um, major teams, I've started to track and showcase rejected tickets because I think they're just as important for our team as the done, as the in progress, the roadmap, because it shows us, okay, we, we took this, this issue, this project, right? And we always start with a project as a you know, calling it a project as yeah. solving some problem. And maybe we took it into design and realized, you know what, like we can't build a, a platform that's completely, you know, based in Arabic. It's just not possible. Right. Okay. Well, that got rejected and it, it gets documented and you've had that conversation. You said, okay, well, that's, you know, what is really the problem, right? Is there a different right. way that we can solve it? If it is still a problem, um, you know, is it a problem that you can solve, right? And it may be that, you know what, right now we can't solve this problem. Let's stop spending time on it. Acknowledge that we can't solve this problem right now. You know, everyone calls it out and then you move in. It might come back, but it doesn't need to be the, the main focus. And at least you can also point to it and say, you know, we've, we said no to this and here's why we said no to it. Has this problem changed? No. Okay. Well, let's not move on. Right. That's, that's where those instructional design elements kind of come into it, which I really yeah. enjoy is that, okay, is this really the problem? No, then stop. Right. You have to go through those stages. And if it's not, then you go back to the beginning um, yeah. and you don't jump or, you know, some people would say you can kind of jump around to different stages. I think it really does start with state the problem and then, we kind of said this before, almost, you know, almost heretically, right? And then you can go through almost a waterfall with these phases, right? You might fall off the waterfall at a certain point, but that problem, that stated problem is crucial as you're going over that waterfall because that's the process, right? Yeah. And that's how you're solving it. If you say the problem, that problem isn't changing from when it, you know, it started its journey. Um, if you have a different problem that starts from the beginning, analyze it, ask what behaviors and skills you need to achieve you know, the learning outcome of of naming that problem, right? And then ask right. yourself, what behaviors and skills do we need to design a solution to that problem? Okay, you know, and that's that's where I think the that flip perspective really ends up happening around the development implementation. Because then you're like, you have to switch and say, okay, this is now a living, breathing thing, right? This product, and how are we going to take care of who's you know having people invested in that product is yeah. going to make all the difference, especially in software, right? Um, one of the things that I've seen. And just recently was this, this note about just, I think it was a one, one to two lines of code equal about two years of maintenance, right? The next time someone's <laughs> going to come back and look at it. And I thought about that and I was like, that's actually really true. Like I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about the things that my team built, you know, seven years ago, right? Like how much time would it take for me to ask a new developer to come on, look at that, you know, 
that could, I know it's not documented well and figure out exactly what's going on. And so it's, once you get to that, that's why it might take a lot of time at design stage, but you know, don't make the mistake of moving too quickly because you look at a product as a project from a design stage to development, because then you're spending real dollars, right? Yeah. And you spend some money in design, but, and you're not spending money just now, you're also going to spend time because if it keeps going to implementation then someone's going to have to support that, right? And they're going to evaluate it and then, you know, whole thing start again so yeah um, so and you've broken all this down in the white paper and and that's available for people to check out right yeah yeah i've uh i've created a basically five the phases that you can go through so each of them can really stand on their own if you're really looking at you know let's say some uh you know some techniques or advice on an analysis or design or development or implementation or evaluation so those will be coming out on leanpub.com backslash flip okay and yeah that'll be a just continuous development as i go through and, and post um i'll be posting about uh five pages at a time just chunking up that way and then eventually it'll be in a an ebook format but for now okay. it's on uh, it's on loop up cool so i'll make sure we include a link to that and what if people want to reach out to you to follow up with questions or share ideas or just talk about um why you're defiling your coffee with peptides yeah <laughs> Yeah, these, these poor cows, <laughs> right? Um, uh, LinkedIn is always going to be the best. So it's just uh, Braden Cundiff. Okay. And I'll make sure we include a link to that. This is awesome, man. Thank you very much for taking time out for this. Yeah, I appreciate it, Dave. Uh, hope to talk to you soon. Yeah.